On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Dale Tuggy about the Trinity and Unitarianism. This is part two of our mini-series on the Trinity. So we discuss topics like what is Unitarianism? Why would someone want to deny the Trinity? What implications does that potentially have for who Jesus is? Is he a divine person or not? Uh, What does that mean for atonement? And we cover a lot of other stuff. We have a lot of back and forth in this one simply just because me and Brandon are Trinitarians and uh, Dr. Tuggy is not. So I think this is a really helpful conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. And as always, if you have questions or overall ideas or thoughts for the show, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can email us at contact at thelondonlyceum.com or you can check us out online at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, a place for friendly discussion and debate designed to generate deep and clear thinking. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today I'm looking forward to introducing you to one of our new friends, Dr. Dale Tuggy. So I think he is, uh, I probably, at least to my knowledge, the foremost Unitarian when it comes to uh, thinking about the nature of God uh, that's out there. I, I don't feel like I'm reading people who are Unitarians besides you. So I, I'm really looking forward to understanding the rationale behind why you would say Trinitarianism is the incorrect way to think uh, about the scriptures. Because I think we pro- we both agree that the scriptures are authoritative. We both agree that uh, what's in there is obviously true. So figuring out why we make the different conclusions we do, I think will help us think uh, more clearly about the Trinity. So maybe before we get started, Dr. Tuggy, I would imagine that some of our listeners know who you are, but there's probably a good chunk that have never heard of you. So maybe you give us a little bit of background about just who you are and what got you interested in this topic. Yeah, well, I was born uh, in Dallas, Texas to an evangelical family. I was born again and baptized at the age of seven going on eight. Um, and I think when I was in my late high school years, I started to learn that there were different religions in the world and there were Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and all kinds of things. And I was listening to apologetics on the radio and things like that. And so that got me curious that I think it's by way of apologetics that I got interested in theology and philosophy. I ended up going to Biola University in Southern California for my undergraduate degree in philosophy. Loved it. Had a wonderful time there. Learned a lot from some godly uh, teachers. Uh, Got a master's from the Claremont Graduate University, which is also in Southern California. And then I went across the country to Brown University to get a PhD. And when I was a PhD student, um, I mean, I think I gave myself some kind of easy mystery answers when I was in high school. Well, you know, you shouldn't expect this to make sense because God is transcendent. And so, of course, it doesn't make sense. So whatever, all Christians believe in the Trinity. And I was pretty dismissive. Um, When I was a grad student, I read two books that got me actually thinking on the topic. One of them was Richard Swinburne's book called The Christian God, where he attempts to give an intelligible and plausible uh, interpretation of creedal tradition about the Trinity. And I wasn't quite sure what I thought of that. A lot of people said it was just tritheism. (laughs) Maybe maybe it's just got to be the right kind of tritheism. I don't know. Um, And then in the bowels of the Brown Library, I found a book by um, the famous Anglican uh, minister and theologian and philosopher Samuel Clark called The Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity, which is a very extraordinary book. He goes through every single New Testament passage that has anything whatever to do with the Father, Son, and Spirit. 
and he interprets it and quotes the church fathers on it and comes up with his own interpretation. Uh, so that's how I got interested in the topic. When I became a young professor in the year 2000 at one of the State University of New York colleges, I was thinking about all these things and and actually starting to go back to reexamine scripture too, because I had uh, I studied a lot of early modern philosophy, you know, philosophy from the 1600s, 1700s. And so I very easily turned to reading um, theology from that time. And I found that some Protestants were not Trinitarians. Well, that's interesting. Why? Are they just a bunch of dirty rationalists? They don't believe in scripture. Are they liberals? Mm, actually, no, not really any of that. Uh, it's just that they thought that if you really dig into the Bible, it turns out there's not an adequate motivation for this idea of a triune God. I wasn't sure what I thought of that. Um I mean, I'm still basically in apologetics mode. I mean, look, there's got to be a way to make this come out self-consistent, that's well-motivated. We just need to roll our sleeves and do some work. Maybe we should say it's a mystery, too. I was still chewing on that. So talk to me more about what happened after that, because I know I think you've got a paper in Theologica where you were talking about it in the 2000s and you're examining these rival Trinitarian theories, like you're talking about here and the creedal language of, you know, God and persons and divine essence. And it turned you from a Trinitarian to a Unitarian Christian. Um, someone who thinks that the one true God is not the Trinity, but rather the father alone. So what was the, I guess, the straw that broke the camel's back, maybe, so to speak, that led you to that conclusion? Well, you know, I wrote a paper in 2002 called The Unfinished Business of Trinitarian Theorizing, where I said, look, do we interpret it this way, or do we interpret it this way, or do we just say it's a mystery? Mm Kind of seems like it's a problem all around. Then I was thinking, well, maybe Clark was right. I didn't realize that Clark's view actually isn't Trinitarian, properly speaking. Um, but I, I thought it was, so maybe that's the right thing to say what, what that guy said. Um, so I was, I was, uh, very alive to all of the, you know, kind of metaphysical and theological problems that the different cashings out get you into, Mm -hmm. but the straw that broke the camel's back was seeing that in the new Testament, there's a clear doctrine that the one God just is the father himself. And that rules out the one God being the Trinity. And that's yeah. that's pretty clear. What's a lot less clear is the issue of pre-existence for the Son and what exactly is going on with the Holy Spirit. Those things are a lot less clear and took me many more years to kind of settle my views on. Got it. So, so since you, you've made the shift from, from Trinitarianism to now Unitarianism, um, maybe help us out with how you define each one of those terms and, and how those terms work in your thinking and your writing. Yeah, so Trinitarianism and Unitarianism are just clashing views about the one God. I mean, we've had these two terms in English since about somewhere around 1690. And so Trinitarian theology says that the one God is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit together, three equally divine persons. Um, Or you could say there's three persons in God or one God exists in three persons. And so in contrast to that, a Unitarian theology says that the one God just is the one that Jesus calls Father and not anyone else. That makes sense. So uh, I think in your writing, you've mentioned this idea of there being like three narratives uh, for the Trinity or of the Trinity. Can you cash out what what you mean by this idea that there are three narratives for it? Yeah. 
Yeah, so there's there's kind of an orthodox narrative, and honestly, it's not really just one narrative here. Um, but the basic idea that is that in some sense, uh, Christians have been Trinitarian since the beginning. And then as the several early centuries went on, they maybe improved their language and their concepts so they could express it better or maybe get less confused. But they were Trinitarian all along, and they just sort of got more comfortable with it or better at it or something like yeah. this. And then honestly, there's a lot of hand-waving and weasel language on this topic from theologians. They'll say things like, well, the seeds of the doctrine are there. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that, that means the doctrine itself isn't there, right? Or the building blocks of it are there. Um, but yeah, after a lot of study, I just learned that this is, we, can, we know this is false just by looking very carefully at the history of early Christian theologies. I mean, it's no more true than the Catholic narrative of apostolic succession. Because when you exclude the modalistic monarchians, if you're not going to count those as triune God people, which I don't think you should, because it's defined to rule those guys out. Uh, if those guys aren't triune God people, there aren't any triune God people until around the year one, 350 or something so thereabouts. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't get to be a popular view really until the time of Augustine. So in the aftermath of the 381 council, when so, you know essentially it was yeah. made mandatory by the emperor and the bishops. I feel like there, there's a lot of questions swirling around here that I, I, I want to talk about. And I mean, you mentioned that, I guess you'd say there's no true Trinitarians until like 350. So, I mean, what about those guys that people always attribute to Trinitarianism to? So Athanasius and, and others like and Tertullian and people assume they're Trinitarians. What do you make of them? Okay, so there's a lot of confusion about language here. And there's a lot of um, giving leeway to earlier guys just because, in some sense, they're on the right track. And uh, so this, the goalposts are constantly shifted. So one, one place to start is with the word Trinity. Mm-hmm. When the word Trinity gets introduced around the year 180, trios in Greek, trinitas in Latin, it, it means a triad. It seems to be inspired by what we now call middle Platonic philosophies. The Christian intellectuals were like, hey, we got a triad. And this is what the triad was, God, the one true God, and then this divine logos and the spirit. That's the triads, three beings. Mm-hmm. Um, someone summarizing origin around the year 300, a little after, summarizes origins theology is that the God, the logos, and the spirit are the three greatest beings, like in order, like most greatest, second greatest, third. It's like gold, silver, and bronze of greatness. <laughs> um, so philosophers call that a plural referring expression. It's not a a word that refers to individual. It refers to a group. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like talking about the gang. The gang went to the store. The gang is a plural referring uh, expression. Um, As time goes on, but again, this usage doesn't become popular until about the time of Augustine and a little before. Um, They use the word Trinity to mean the triune God. And that's a big shift because God goes from being kind of the founding member of the Trinity from being the Trinity, like all three of them together. So the the usage of the word God shifts as well. So in the New Testament, God is 99.5% of the time the Father. Very small handful of passages is the Son. You can argue once or twice it's the Spirit. Um, And that starts to shift in the 100s, and they start to be a lot more liberal in their usage of God terms. So they use it a lot more often for the sun in the 100s. Uh, but still, that basic pattern is there. You know, they, they usually mean 
the father when they say God, because they think the father is the one true God. Yeah. Um, and that pattern actually lasts to this day because people still <laughs> read the Bible, um, but it makes the language confusing. But so the way you tell if somebody believes in a triune God is if they use the word Trinity to mean the one God, because mm -hmm. only a Trinitarian will do that. Um, and if they use the word God to mean like all three of them together, because only a Trinitarian will do that. But the same time they do that, they'll use the older usage. You know, they'll talk about the Trinity as if it's just a plural referring term. And they'll talk about God and mean the Father when they're in a biblical context. Yeah. So uh, when you sort this out, it becomes pretty clear. And it's, it's, you really can't find a triune God reference in, you know, before deep into the Nicene controversy. So then it seems like a lot of this is hermeneutical decisions when it comes to the text, because I, I would imagine, I think most Trinitarians, I mean, if they're honest, they're going to go look at places like Philippians 1, 2 says, you know, the one God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it, it you know, Godhood is attributed to the father the lordship is attributed to Jesus in that text. So that might, you know, cause some confusion, but it seems at least for me, when I think about scripture, I, I would be fine with the reality that it's not all, you know, laid out for me exactly how I should think about God. Um, there's a development of outworking and understanding what all these different texts imply and ultimately require for me to believe. So, I guess, yeah. do but, we just have a difference in thinking about how we think about Scripture? I mean, look, it, take, it takes a lot of effort to get the later interests out of your head, all, all these 4th century and later obsessions out of your head when you're trying to interpret a 1st century text. Mm -hmm. that, that's where a lot of the difficulty lies. Um, and But, you know, I think as, as people who believe in the inspiration of Scripture, I think we have to be really careful not to think that uh, these poor blokes are just pretty confused and they really just need the help of Athanasius to come along and sort it all out for them. You know, in my view, their, their theology and Christology just makes sense. Mm -hmm. And they're not struggling about trying to find out how that God can be one in three. I think that's a just so story that people come up with after the fact. But, you know, we did. OK, we, we only I, I said kind of what the uh, orthodox narrative was. I didn't say what the two other narratives yeah. were. I, I said ex expressed why I, I don't believe it anymore. Um, uh, recently, an analytic theologian, Bo Branson, mm -hmm. uh, and also some other Eastern Orthodox guys like John Baer, uh, have sketched a different narrative that I have called the Western misunderstanding narrative. So according to this, and you had a guest, Corby Amos, who just yeah. has bought this hook, line, and sinker. This is exactly the view he was expressing. So mm -hmm. their view is that, look, the true doctrine of the Trinity is really just that the one God is the Father alone. Oh, and also there are these two other divine persons. Uh, triune God, that has nothing to do with it. You don't need to get into that. Uh, and their view is that Western Latin language theologians, starting maybe with Augustine or around that time, they kind of misunderstood it and, and messed it up and came up with this triune God confusing idea and you don't need that you just go back to the proper greek sources which in branson's view includes the cappadocians and people like origin and you know then then all this makes sense and moreover tuggy's objections about there's no triune god in the bible you can just agree with that no there isn't any triune god in the bible but still the trinity is what i just said there's one god the father almighty 
Oh, and there's the, also these two other persons that have the divine essence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, this is what I argued against in my recent article called "What and, Sorry, When and How in the History of Theology Did the Triune God Replace the Father as the Only True God? And basically, I just argue that, no, the, the primary sources show that you have the idea of a triune God in the Greek-speaking guys just as much as the Latin-speaking guys and about the same time. So I don't think that's right. Um, it's, it's right around the time of that 381 council. Um, my own view about what actually happens is complicated, but I'll, I'll try to keep it as short as possible. So in the New Testament, the one God, Yahweh, is the Father. Jesus is his human Messiah. And the Spirit of God is just that. It's, God, it's God's Spirit. It's not supposed to be a person in addition to God any more than your spirit is a person in addition to you. Uh, in the late first and second centuries, for multiple reasons, people start to speculate about Jesus's pre-existence, his existence before he uh, was a human. Starting in the mid 100s, some Christian intellectuals start to come up with what historians call logos theories. And according to this, this is, these are ex- inspired by Plato's strange dialogue called the Timaeus. God is too transcendent to get his hands dirty, so to speak, making the material cosmos himself. Mm-hmm. So when it's time to create, he has to emanate out this in-between being, which is neither created nor uncreated, his logos. And then he, he creates through the logos. So he does things kind of uh, secondhand through this other. So in one sense, there's one create, creator. In another sense, there's two. Uh, this theology, the proponents of Logos theology tell us that this was widely opposed by common Christians. And their slogan was, no, we uphold the monarchy of the Father. And that was their way of saying, no, there aren't two creators. There's only one creator, the Father Almighty, like all the early creeds say. And there aren't two gods. There is just one God, the Father. Because the early Logos theologians thought that the Logos was a second and lesser God. They're very clear about this. They say things like, uh, these these are two in number and things like that, yeah. uh, two individuals. So, um, right. So some of the people against Lagos theory held what historians call dynamic monarchian views, which is basically what people called biblical Unitarians nowadays think. Jesus came into existence at the time or shortly after his miraculous conception. The Lagos of John 1 is... God's word by which he creates. And it's this, which in in a sense became embodied in the man, Jesus. Um, That's why they're called dynamic monarchians uh, because of the dunamis, the power of God working in Christ to reconcile the world. Uh, Others were clearly confusing together the father and the son. Historians call them modalistic monarchians. They're mocked as patroposians because they just think Jesus is just the one God himself. And so God himself died on the cross and God himself suffers and so on. Um, and you basically have these types of thinking going right through the fourth century. Although as time goes on, the Logos theory goes from an elite view held by uh, certain people to kind of being a majority view. Um, the Nicene, the, the so-called Arian controversy is basically a battle between two different kinds of subordinationists. Uh, more originistic ones that wanted to say the sun was eternal and in some sense fully divine, and the uh, the kind of more radical ones that wanted to draw a sharper line between God and God's logos. Um, and uh, so around the late, the, the, that controversy is very complicated. 
but uh, around the late parts of it, you know, you have the Cappadocians insisting on the Nicene formula as just the, you know, the bedrock core important Christian claim. You have to say Father, Son, and Spirit or Homo Sion. Mm-hmm. And um, it's clear from what he wrote that Basil of Caesarea was constantly pestered with other mainstream Christians, other Catholics, uh, saying, hey, you're a tritheist, dude, because you have three different beings, and each one of those has the divine essence. The divine essence is just by nature that which makes something a god. So you're a tritheist. And he floundered around and tried to give different answers. Well, there's only one Usia, and things they, they always work together and things like this. And I don't think he solved it. But he doesn't mention a triune god either. So he dies before the controversy is resolved. His two younger associates, Gregory of Nazianzus and Gregory of Nyssa, I think they say, well, actually, here's why it's monotheism. Because this one divine nature we're talking about, that's God. That's the tripersonal God. And so then then you have Trinitarian theology. Mm -hmm. Difficult to sort out kind of how to take that, but they now have an answer to the, the tritheism objection built into their view. So I'm just interested kind of in your view of of the tradition and and church history in general when it comes to doing theology. I mean clearly you know <clears throat> you know a lot about um the history of the church, but when it comes to doing your own theology, do you think that because uh, you mentioned earlier um that in in one of these trinity narratives um that there's like weasel words used for when we say there's like the building blocks of you know trinitarian theology there early on. Um do you are, are you saying that we shouldn't use these historical sources um, to formulate our theological positions? That we should use just the Bible alone? Or I'm just trying to understand where you're coming from on that, like how how to think about the tr- the tradition in general. No, I think we should use the tradition as much as we can and as well as we can. Right? It would be arrogant to think that I should just start with just me and my Greek New Testament or something and just kind of start from scratch. Yeah. Uh, but there's an there's an error on the other side, which is treating these these you know capital letter great theologians as as authorities, uh, as if they're some kind of infallible source. You know, they're just people. I treat them like I treat other present day philosophers, someone yeah. that you should respect. But however, you may have to conclude that they're badly confused on certain topics, because that's how it is with human beings. You know. We're, Somebody could be a super duper expert on one topic and just be terribly confused on another topic. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, there's there's plenty to appreciate um, in the mainstream because they steered the mainstream clear of Gnosticism and other ridiculous things. <laughs> I mean, whilst not being free of ridiculous things, yeah. you know, if you read like traditional uh, sexual ethics, it's pretty horrifying. Um, thank God that they they've you know, Catholic tradition has gotten better on that over the years, but, um, yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. Thank you. I feel like, you know, I'm sympathetic, uh, to that because I do think that there is at least in my circles, a tendency now to almost shift to the other side where that, where the church fathers become inerrant in everything they say. And I, that is obviously a danger, but I think for my own, I guess, personal thinking, I am willing to give different deference to the ecumenical creeds just because I feel like, and, it, and maybe this is a bad argument, but there, to some degree, I'm like, if the church has agreed with this for 2000 years, I, I, 
and it's this core central claim to to what Christianity is, I feel pretty good about the spirit not messing that one up. So, well, I think you, we should be a better Baptist than that, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> uh, look at look, it's not two thousand years, right? I mean, with this triune God stuff, it goes back pretty pretty precisely to that three eighty one ruling. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody was still disagreeing about it until the emperor said, "Shut up, the Nicene guys are right." And uh, the triune God isn't mentioned in the 381 creed, but I think it's implicitly understood there yeah. in the context of the times. I, I think that's what they meant by it. But they were very conservative at that point about introducing one shred of new language. Mm-hmm. Because when they did it before, it caused 50 years of bitter struggles. <laughs> but um, look, um, you're a Baptist. You, I assume you've been a Baptist your whole life. So yeah. you've never then been under the authority of a small C Catholic bishop. Yeah. Why would you think that a meeting of bishops is authoritative in pronouncing on doctrines? If all the Catholic, Orthodox, and Anglican bishops got together tomorrow and gave some pronouncement about, I don't know, Mariology or human sexuality or something, you just blow it off. Yeah, I guess that there's a distinction because it seems like uh, for these, almost the universal church has agreed and said, you know what, we, we agree with these. These are good and right summaries of doctrine, and that's gone on for a, a very significant portion of time. Now, if, you know, it's just one, one, I agree. there's the a burden Catholics, of proof there. Yeah. Yeah. There's a burden so, of proof there for sure. So I'm willing to say, defer to that to begin with. And then, I mean, honestly, that, so, that's how I started. Yeah. So talk to me how you take like the divine identity claims in the gospel of John. So it seems to me when I read the gospel of John, I see Jesus using these, I am statements, uh, which, I mean, read biblical scholars or read others. It's it seems pretty clear that he's identifying himself with the one true God by using that language. I mean, the Jews were ready to stone him for making these blasphemous claims uh, of identifying himself with God. What what do you take those to mean? Oh boy, there was a lot in that question. Unfortunately, <laughs> you pushed one of my rant buttons. So <laughs> this um this stuff about divine identity is pure confusion. It's purely due to Richard Bauckham. And I published a paper on in Theology Today about this called On Bauckham's Bargain. Mm-hmm. And I explain why I don't think this divine identity language is is helpful at all. I mean, it, he's talking about personal identity. Mm-hmm. So the term kind of suggests that God, Jesus is the same person as God. Uh, but maybe actually he's just like a part of God or one of the three who are God or something like that. And it's not a category that anybody in history was using, right? It's all purely due to him. And what he's doing is he's kind of trying to reinvent, um, you could say, a divine Christology while skipping all the traditional Nicene language, which he thinks is unclear and outdated. Hmm. Um, And I I don't think that's helpful. I mean, uh, so, yeah, I object to the term completely. I don't think it has any use in biblical studies whatsoever. So just to make sure um, I'm under, I just want to make sure I'm understanding you. Are you saying that no, that no one believed that that those I am statements were were Christ claiming divine identity until Balcom? Oh no! Well, again, take divine identity out because yeah. that's that's a confusion. So the terminology is what you don't like. That's a the confusion divine, that he yeah. introduced. But if you're asking, did they think Jesus was the same person as God? Yes, that is exactly what the modalistic monarchians thought. At least the ones that they call Patroposians. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming that the modes are not one after the other, but that they're concurrent. Yeah. Um, so 
but yeah, John, I love John. John, John is many Unitarian Christians favorite book. Um, the I am statements, you have to remember that the Greek phrase ego a me can be a simple phrase of self-identification. Basically you translate it like it's me or I'm the one or here I am, things like that. So the man born blind in John chapter nine, they're like, are you the guy that used to sit at the gate? And he says, ego a me. Mm -hmm. Um, Now what Jesus means by it, I think, and by the way, don't take the Jews as a guide to what Jesus actually means in the book of John. Those guys are like rodeo clowns. (laughs) They're always missing the point um, in a horrible way, right? I have to go back inside my mother to be born again. Yeah. I have to eat you like a cannibal, you know? Um, And uh, so they're always overreacting to stuff and they're kind of comic figures. So you don't, you don't want to say, see, they understood because they were right there with them and they Mm -hmm. were Jews. That's, that's the wrong, they're spiritually blind people who don't get it in John. Um, Basically, I think Jesus, when he says before Abraham was, I am, I think he means before Abraham was, I am he, like he explains in chapter four to the Samaritan woman, I'm the one would be another way to translate it. It's a, it's a claim that he was predestined to be God's Messiah, Hmm. which we know is the, is the kind of uh, main point of the entire book. Like it says in chapter 20, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the son of God, the, the Christ. What, but John's what, a big conversation. There's lots yeah. of passages we can talk about in John. Uh, what role does – early on, you mentioned mystery a few times, and it seemed um, you used it in a negative way, um, that you don't like appeals to mystery when it comes to discussions of the nature of God. So do you have any place for for mystery when you're doing your work, or is that just a no-no? And just so you know, Brandon was texting me last night about mystery stuff. So this is like a hobby horse for him. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I talk about this in my book, What is the Trinity? I have a chapter on this uh, and, I, and I've thought a lot about it. Sometimes when people say something's a mystery, they just mean it's really neat, but it's like something we can't completely understand. Yeah. Well, then, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of all the mysteries then, you know, human consciousness, love, uh the planets and the stars and God and everything. Uh, Cause those are all wonderful, amazing things that we can't fully understand. Sometimes, um, you know, the new Testament sense of mystery is very kind of unexciting in a sense, right? It just means yeah. something which didn't used to be known, but now it's known because God has revealed it. So, you know, that, that, that Christ would uh, return and rule the world is a mystery, but now it's something that we know based on divine revelation Um, in my work. And you can see this in the Stanford encyclopedia of philosophy article uh, on Trinity. I've distinguished two different things people are doing with mystery appeals. And sometimes, honestly, it's just a way of shutting the conversation down. It's like a bailout. It's like a parachute. Um, Okay. But if we, if we stay more serious than that, we want to keep talking. Um, I think in ancient times, what they meant by, uh, saying that this is a mystery is what I call negative mysterianism. And this is the claim that um, you can just barely form the slightest grasp of what these claims mean. And you can just come up with all these analogies, but they're all bad analogies. But somehow if you pile up enough bad analogies, you'll get this little spark of insight in your soul about what, what these terms actually mean. Um, 
And so it goes with a very kind of apophatic approach. And I see Augustine as kind of majoring on this type of thing. If you look at the end of De Trinitate on the Trinity, uh, forget all the speculative stuff he does in the middle. Like he really tells you what he thinks more at the beginning and the end of the book. And uh, he ends on a very hard Mysterian note. So in ancient times, I see it more like that. In modern times, um, Protestants, for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me, um, have focused more on the sense of mystery where it's an apparent contradiction. And so there's an analytic theologian named James Anderson at Reformed Theological Seminary Mm -hmm. who's written the best book about this. I summarize it again in my Trinity entry in the encyclopedia. But uh, his view is that, you know, it can be reasonable to believe uh, apparently contradictory claims. Uh, you know, because they, if you have strong enough evidence in favor of those apparently contradictory claims, well, I guess they must not really be contradictory in the end, right? Because contradictions can't be true. So if you pile up strong enough evidence in favor of claims which seem to clash, well, they must ultimately not clash, even if you don't understand how. Um, and yeah, that makes sense to me. In a sense, I I admit that there can be mysteries like that, but um. The thing is, uh, do we ever have that much evidence in these kind of matters? Because, you know, think about any other area of Bible interpretation. Um, We consider apparent contradictoriness a strong evidence of falsehood, right? How do we tell when we have a contradiction? Well, we find an apparent contradiction. Um, If you have an interpretation and and it implies an apparent contradiction, we say, well, that's uncharitable. You know, isn't there a better way we can take it where the author is not contradicting himself? Or, or the author doesn't seem to contradict himself. Um, so because that's such strong evidence of falsehood, the evidence for its truth would have to be really, really strong. And I don't, I don't think you actually have that in these matters, right? Because the evidence is, well, I think this text means this. Okay, well, this is one of the main ways we slay text, we, we slay potential interpretations. This is how we thin the herd. Ones which imply contradictions to the to itself or contradictions to other things we know, we we see we rule those out in the hopes that we can come up with something consistent. E- even if in the end you have to just admit there are contradictions uh, in Scripture, still philosophers call it the principle of charity. You know, you should save this for the very last. You should try as hard yeah. as you can to interpret a source in a way that's consistent with itself and with other things that we know. Yeah, I, I think we both, I think we all three agree on monotheism. Um, and I think we all agree that tritheism is not the way to go. So uh, f- figuring out how Trinitarians like myself and Brandon have can make a coherent understanding of this without falling into contradictions is important. So I think, at least from my own reading, uh, Tim Paul just came out with an article on that same theological one as you, uh, I guess kind of summarizing conciliar Trinitarianism, defending it. Do you have any major issues with what how Tim Paul's done it? Because I know you've got a book, uh, I think what a, like a debate book with him out and, um, and Chris not Day- with Tim, not with Tim Paul. I've interviewed him a couple times on the Trinity's podcast. I have a debate book with Chris Date. Ah, it's the, the and evangelical Paul did the, like forward the rethinking hell guy. Yeah, yeah Paul wrote the forward. Yes, okay. he wrote a very nice, well done forward for my debate book. Uh, I love Tim Paul. He's a great. He's a great scholar. Yeah, Tim is um, so so cool. He's so, hilarious too. <laughs> I what was it? His um 
conciliar Christology book, I think I just fell over laughing a couple times because of some of his. Me too. Jokes, so yeah. when, we, when we interviewed him, my wife was listening to that episode and she was like, he just seems like such a nice guy. Like He is. <laughs> That's the real him. That's the real him. He's always the same. So, yeah, talk to me about Tim Paul, because I think Tim Paul is probably one of the premier, I guess, conciliar Trinitarian, Trinitarians. He's uh, an analytic theologian, so he's not, uh, I think, keen to pull the mystery card when he doesn't doesn't need to. Uh, I don't think he's just going to simply throw up his hands and say, well, it's all a mystery. I'm not going to give you any idea of what I'm trying to do. So where do you think he goes wrong in, in his interpretations? <clears throat> I've read that piece of his. I don't remember exactly what I thought. I mean, I think he's doing what he did with his conciliar Christology books, and he's mm-hmm. trying to find the bare minimum that they're committed to, and then just see if that bare minimum can be defended as coherent. Um, but I think his work on incarnation is incredibly important because it actually shows that a lot of people nowadays really don't understand the uh, historical third, fourth, fifth century view uh, the basic point is that the two natures of Christ are not just properties. They're not mm-hmm. abstract qualities. They're things. Yeah. Right. So the human nature died on the cross. Yeah. Um, now he has a funny way to get around why this isn't Nestorianism. I mean, basically he only, he won't call them persons uh, or he won't call the, he won't call the human nature a person, mm-hmm. but I mean, it does everything that we think a person does. So, Part of, part of being a biblical Unitarian is a concern about monotheism and a concern just that the Reformation, the mainstream Reformation didn't go far enough, that some of the radical reformers were correct, that they should have gone past Augustine, yeah. back, back to earlier views. That's part of it. But another part of it is intense skepticism about um, Orthodox Christology. And it looks like you either get two Jesuses or you get a Jesus which isn't really human but could pass for one. Right. So think about the, you're familiar with the term and hypostatic nature. Mm-hmm. Right. So you got this eternal divine person, and then it is united in a mysterious way with this uh, and hypostatic human nature, which means that the human nature doesn't, the, the body and soul don't constitute a person. And yeah. um, look, why should you think that's a genuine human being? Uh, I've given in some of my talks this analogy. Suppose that a demon, suppose dualism is true, okay? Mm-hmm. And suppose that demons uh, could kick your soul out of your body. So a demon comes into me and uh, either annihilates my soul or kicks it out. And then you have a demon running around in the Dale Tuggy body. Maybe he would be using my brain. Maybe his voice would sound the same, or maybe it wouldn't like the movies. I don't know. But like nobody would think that he had become human by doing that, yeah. by just kind of interacting through. Say, say he deactivated my soul so that it no longer formed a human person with my body. And yet he's kind of puppeting this around like that would make him human. So why would this make an eternal divine person human? Orthodox Christology always has one foot in docetism right on the edge. And, uh, you know, I think half the time before I settled my mind about this, especially when I was like uh, in my teens and 20s, like, I basically thought Jesus was kind of God in disguise, kind of pretending to have limitations, mm-hmm. um, pretending not to know things and, uh, you know, just to, yeah. to serve a certain mission, I guess. So but I, I, don't, I definitely I don't think, think that's right. I think you, you'd be right. So if, if the divine son just came and kicked out the soul of a body, 
I would think he's not assuming an actual human nature, but it, I think most of church history has said he does assume a soul uh, and a body. So he doesn't like kick out the be, soul. Yeah. But because of the union, those do not, do not count as a person. Yeah. So the only difference is uh, in my example, they're used, the, the human nature used to constitute a person, but then after the demon takes over, it doesn't anymore. So just, you know, change the example. A demon uh, comes up to God, says, hey, God, you have an extra body and soul I can use. And God, sure, I'm not using this one here. It's like it's Polly Shore's body <laughs> and soul. And the demon, you know, that wouldn't make him a real human. It'd make him a demon interacting mm-hmm. with the world through a body. Um, I mean, another example you could give would be, uh, well, I mean, the, the, the point is that an apparent human doesn't have to be a real human. Yeah. And and be you know interacting somehow with parts that normally constitute a human doesn't look like it would be enough to make one human. Mm-hmm. So that to come up with a genuine human Christology is a major concern of yeah, ours. We think that's an important New Testament emphasis. That's helpful. Uh, so you, earlier you mentioned that ninety nine point five percent of the examples of the um, of God are, are in reference to the Father in Scripture. Um, so what do you do with the other, you know, 0.5? I, I guess maybe just an obvious example would be um, when Thomas, you know, refers to Jesus as God. Like how, how, what is your interpretation of that passage or any other passages that maybe you think are the most difficult on the surface to interpret for your position? Okay, those are those are several questions there. I mean, first of all, let me make the point that that statistic is not my my point. That is something that New Testament scholars say. So you can look, for instance, in the evangelical uh, textual specialist Murray Harris in his book "Jesus as God in the New Testament." And that's what he says. Well, I wasn't denying uh, that. that yeah, was, I know yeah. you aren't. Oh, okay. But but some people will say, "Don't listen to that what rascally, you know, <laughs> philosopher. He's going to trick you somehow." Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, how many times is Jesus called God? Well, as he discusses in that book, uh, some of the instances depend on textual and translation difficulties. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the base and about that, that passage that you mentioned in John 20, I think what's actually happening there is Thomas is portrayed as the first person as making the, the standard Christian confession of one God and one Lord. Uh, because earlier in the book, you know, Jesus has emphasized that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's the Father working in me. Um, and so now he sees God working in Jesus. And so I think he's actually addressing both of them. Okay, but suppose suppose that's wrong. Um, the The point that you have to see, I think, about God terms in the New Testament is that monotheism is true in the New Testament. There's only one God, but monotheosism is false. Monotheism is you can only correctly refer to one being using the word God. That's that's not true. I think the least controversial place to see it would be in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. He's quoting Psalm 45, and he says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Right? He just used God to refer to the Son there. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So God is being used in two senses there. Once for God, who's the God of this other one addressed as God. 
who in Psalm 45 originally would have been some king, which, you know, the terms were more flexible yet yeah, earlier. Yeah. At New Testament times, God is almost always reserved for God. The word God is almost always used for God. In earlier times, it wasn't quite as strict as that. And then, in, and then in the following two verses, I mean that it, the word God isn't used, but then he's quoting Psalm 102, right? Yes, and of the Son, and and that is so he's ascribing that to the Son, which is in the Old Testament language of of God. Yes. Okay. So this, this is actually one of the most difficult verses for my view, hmm. uh, and it's tricky. And I think the answer is in some journal articles that point out that in the Septuagint, it looks like there's a speaker and a one spoken to here. Uh, but the question is, I guess, for interpretation in Christology, is is this talking about creation, the Genesis creation, which the original Psalm obviously was, or is it talking about new creation? Because the whole context of this in the next chapter is, you know, Christ's current status, what's happened in these latter days and things like that. So I think he, he's making a new creation uh, claim about this. Now, th this general phenomenon, and again, this is, this is a self-inflicted wound in a lot of recent conservative biblical scholarship. And you see it in people like Bauckham as well. So they, they'll find an Old Testament text that's obviously about Yahweh. And they'll say, look, here, this New Testament guy says that Jesus fulfilled that text. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, that's the this New Testament guy's way of saying that Jesus just is Yahweh himself. Now, this is a beginner's mistake in interpreting the New Testament. Uh, because what they thought was that God uh, could sort of encode multiple meanings and multiple interpretations that had to do with multiple fulfillments into these texts. So take in Matthew, what is it, Matthew 6, you know, he's, he, Jesus is um, fulfilling this prophecy about Emmanuel. Emmanuel was a baby in Isaiah's time. Mm -hmm. This is not Matthew's way of saying that Jesus is that baby, like reincarnated. Mm -hmm. This is his way of saying that, hey, you know, guys, this was really kind of hidden in scripture, and now we can finally see it there. And so there's a lot of that kind of stuff in the New Testament. I call it the fulfillment fallacy that the one who fulfills these these words must be the same as those words were originally about. Yeah. That's so, not true. A lot lots of Bible scholars discuss this, but on the level of apologetics and conservative uh present day scholarship, there there's a lot of tomfoolery on this mm -hmm. particular topic. Would your would your reply be the same for I think it's John is it John chapter twelve? Um I could look it up, but where he says um, Isaiah saw his glory, and he's he's speaking about about Jesus there, um, and then it, so then it takes you back to Isaiah chapter six, and, and you know, and his call. I know that's yeah. a do you because that that doesn't seem to me to be so much um, fulfillment. I mean, that's more. I mean, the that's glory a tricky of, passage because he's also referring back to Isaiah fifty three, which is the famous crucifixion mm -hmm. prediction. In, in their eyes. And, yeah. um, you know, John's glory in the, the, sorry, the glory of Christ in John is what happens at the end when he gets crucified. Like paradoxically that, that crucifixion, that humiliation is his, is, is what, what glorifies him. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but yeah, look, um, I mean, I think John's, John's clear enough about what he's saying. He tells us what the main point is, which is that Jesus is the son of God, the Christ. 
it's unaccountable he would make it that ma- that his main point if his point is really that Jesus is God or that God is multiple persons or something. Uh, in John 17, he has Jesus pray and refer to the Father as the only true God. And uh, just, you know, once you start, fo- when you stop focusing on like the five favorite proof texts of deity of Christ people and you read the whole book, it's actually vigorously distinguishing God from Christ constantly. You know, he says stuff like, you know, don't believe me because of my own testimony, but there's someone else who testifies in favor of me. And, um, you know, it's, it's said that, uh, you know, that the God, the one God is, is the God of the Jews, the one that you say is your father. So, I mean, I think John's theology is, is Unitarian. Now, whether there's pre-existence presupposed is another question. Whether yeah. Christ could be divine in some sense is another question. Yeah, that's a question I wanted to ask you because it seems like my understanding of salvation, I need not just a human sacrifice, but I need in some sense someone who's divine to be able to to live this life that's perfect and do all these things and to actually die a death that's worthy and sufficient to save me from my sins. So is Jesus divine in any sense? What does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked about that, because I think that's a major concern that a lot of people have nowadays. And it's really interesting, you know, if you try to find anywhere in the New Testament where it's suggested that Jesus could only, you know, be the atoning lamb because he's God or because he's divine, like there's just there's just zero to come up with there. It is suggested a couple of times that he was a fitting um, savior and intermediary because he's one of us, because mm-hmm. he's like his brothers. That is suggested. Uh, and they're, and that's part of their anti-docetism, but um, that he has to be God to pay for sins. So, I mean, early on in patristic times, you had this speculation starting with people like Irenaeus that uh, he has to be divine in order to divinize us because salvation is divinization. Yeah. Well, okay. Maybe in some, in some sense, salvation is divinization, depending on what you mean by that. But where, why do you have to be divine to make somebody divine? Like that's, that's just a metaphysical assumption. Protestants have mostly dropped that entirely, right? They go back to Anselm's speculation that uh, any sin against an infinitely good God is infinitely terrible. And so uh, there has to be um, satisfaction. There has to be a, a, a loss, which is infinite that's sacrificed. But uh, I mean, look, that's, it looks like you can say everything you want to say about atonement in the New Testament, yeah, and have Jesus be a human. Hmm. I mean, it's not literal payment. Um, you, you can you can describe it like a payment. That's one of many metaphors, you know, that that's used of it. It's also compared to, uh, you know, a sin offering yeah. uh, or to washing and things like that. So, is it your view? I, I, as I don't want to ascribe something to you that you're not saying, and I'm, you know, prior to today, I'm, I'm not that familiar with, with your view. So are you saying that Trinitarians are, I guess, just to put it bluntly, worshiping another God, like that they have created a God that is not found uh, in the Bible. And then I guess the second part of that question would be, um, how does that affect uh, who's saved and who's not saved? Because it seems to me if you're worshiping, uh, a different God, then there's questions of salvation that come into play. Yeah. So I do think the Trinity is a fiction. I don't think there's any such thing as a triune God, 
but I don't think Trinitarians are worshiping a different God. I think uh, the more, particularly when the more biblical they are, they think the one God is the father. And then they just say, well, yeah, but the one God's also these other two, and they're not quite sure how that fits together, but it really doesn't fit together. Um, so, you know, I used to be a Trinitarian. I don't think I was worshiping a different God. I think I was born again. And um, it's just, you know, since then, I'm grateful that the New Testament makes sense to me now, and I'm not not so confused. I mean, in, in my view, most Trinitarians, unless they're philosophers and have really worked themselves sort of chiseled out, really settled position, I think they kind of bounce back and forth between, you know, the really three friends, which is really kind of tritheism, or really it's just sort of three personalities of one, one person, essentially, what I call a one self Trinity view. Or maybe, maybe you just throw up your hands and say it's a mystery. So, uh, I think there's confusion there, but I think am- amidst the confusion, no, I think <laughs> what what do Trinitarians do when they pray? Well, if they're very liturgical, they they use liturgy that addresses the Trinity. But uh, even if they do that, or especially if they're more Bible oriented, they pray to God through Jesus, mm-hmm. which that's that's the main thing you do. I mean, I think you can pray to Jesus too. I think you see that in the New Testament in a few spots. But um, yeah, in the Holy Spirit, not an object of worship in the New Testament. Yeah, not so much in Bible-oriented, you know, Baptist churches, for instance. Uh, they, they, so they, they do follow the Bible. Um, they just have bought into that the Bible is consistent with these Catholic traditions. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to make it work out. Um, what's essential? Uh, I have a podcast on this called something like uh, Dropping the H-Bomb, Four Different Views on Heresy. But um, in short, I don't think the Trinity and Incarnation doctrines are essential because I don't think they're part of the apostolic teaching. So what I think is essential is roughly what's taught in Acts. And that's that Jesus is God's Christ. If you want to sum it up in one, in one sentence, that's how you do it. Jesus is the Son of God or Jesus is the Christ. Now that entails a lot of other things, that there's one God who's the God of the Jews, the creator of the world. He sent his son, you know, to do everything that a Messiah is supposed to do, which includes being the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and someday coming and ruling the kingdom. Um, but, you know, it's basically the things I see in Acts that I think are essential. Um, the Christian philosopher John Locke actually independently came to this conclusion a long time ago. In the late 1690s, he was disturbed by the Calvinists and others, you know, denouncing one another and having endless debates about what's essential. And so he just sat down with the New Testament one winter and just read through the whole thing. And he's like, well, what does this really say is essential? And that's what he came up with. Jesus Mm -hmm. is the Christ. But I think that there's a vague set of other propositions that kind of go along with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, look, look at the way that Baptists evangelize children, right? You tell them roughly what's in acts you don't you don't tell them two natures hypostatic union you know one who see a three hypostases you, you spring that on them later unless you're a good reformed baptist then you're doing the cat the catechism <laughs> yeah yeah there is a difference there there's a difference um, there so i think this has been really helpful um uh, and i i think you know i i, I definitely don't think uh 
our reformed ancestors because both me and Brandon are reformed. And I know there's reformed police. So some people are going to say we're not reformed. That's fine. But the errors, I guess our errors in the reformation would have basically tried to kill um, anyone who was radicalized in various things. I don't think that's the way to go, obviously. Good. Um, So (laughs) I, I think we can be friends I, I think I enjoy you talking to you. I think this has been really helpful. I don't want to gloss over our differences. Obviously, we have significant disagreements. Um, and then figuring out how to parse what exactly is essential and what isn't essential. Um, I think me and Brandon were talking about what 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 do you have to believe to be a Christian? We're like, you know, Nicene Creed. What we would say is a good faithful summary. The Apostles' Creed is also a faithful summary. Uh, and figuring out where does that line stop, is it is vague. It is difficult, I There's think. A- yeah, there's a lot of table pounding. I mean, people just, no, this this has got to be essential. It just has yeah. to. And and they'll appeal to early modern creeds and things like that. But look, uh, we didn't set, we didn't come up with this deal. We didn't come up with the new covenant. I mean, the yeah. terms were set long before us. And we know they're going to have to be minimal so that people who aren't very smart yeah. and seven-year-old kids can make the deal. So we should think really hard before you put those things in the essential category. Yeah, and I guess the way I've kind of thought about it, um, and maybe I'm wrong in this, is that there's a distinction between, um, like, you don't have to know this robust body of doctrine to be a a Christian, but it seems like there are some essential things that, um, while you may not need to know them in full, if you're taught them, uh, you would have to accept them at that point. So do you You have any thoughts on that? You don't have to believe them, but you can't sort of be an informed denier. Right. These are the people that would gleefully damn me to hell. (laughs) Um, But look, uh, it's not that I think I'm so smart, like I'm the only person who can see the problems with these. It's just that I think when you get your head into what the New Testament authors were actually up to, they're not saying those things. I think that their views just stand on their own. Yeah. Well, I would imagine probably most of our our listeners um, don't agree with you. But that said, I I think it's important and helpful to create a posture of charity toward others, um, to treat everybody with love and respect, um, even when we don't don't agree on things. And I mean, I think this area is difficult and I think there's a lot to to be thought about and to, to wrestle with. So I encourage everybody who's been listening. I mean, Dale, you've got you've got a podcast yourself. You've got a lot of books, right? So like, where can they go if they want to learn to listen to you more, to figure out, to understand all, all the nuances of your position? Where, where are they going to go for that? Um, I don't have a lot of books. I have a short book called What is the Trinity? And I have a lot of published journal articles. So you can find most of my journal articles on my academia.edu page. And the Trinities podcast is at trinities.org. My experience is that most most evangelicals have not encountered a case, a biblical Unitarian case that's thorough. So they just kind of imagine what it must amount to. It must be rationalism yeah. and so on. Yeah. Uh, I have podcasts, podcast 189, the unfinished business of the Reformation. I explain why I think in the New Testament, the one God is the Father and not the Trinity. Uh-huh. I have another podcast about you know how I think the Bible conflicts with Trinity theories. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not rhetoric and, you know, big talking. It's carefully crafted arguments that yeah. are valid arguments. And so you either 
because they're valid arguments, you either say, well, I agree with the premises and the conclusion follows, or you say, well, I disagree with the conclusion, so therefore I'm going to have to disagree with this premise right here. Yeah. So at least it advances the discussion um, and isn't just kind of pushing and name calling. Yeah. No, I've read some of your stuff and it, and I've, it has valid arguments. I just, I disagree with certain premises here and there. Um, and I think I, it seems to me that a big, I guess, difference is just, I have more deference to say, uh, church history got it right. I'm willing to just assume that the spirit has worked in these. So I'm taking, I guess, John 17, where this, the spirit will guide you in all truth. I just feel like if if Unitarianism was true, we would have way more believers in it um, throughout church history. Well, just remember how many Christians were being Christians outside of the bishop structure in the year 1500, I mean, basically zero, right? Yeah. So as a Protestant, I mean, I think you have to admit that God does in fact allow some pretty serious longstanding errors for whatever reason— he lets us mess it up, you know, just yeah. like he let the Jews, you know, lose the law at one point, forget about it, misinterpret it. He he lets us mess up things like that. And, yeah, I mean, uh, as so a why, Baptist, I, mean, I have to say, a priori, we can't rule this out. So, right? <laughs> yeah. A priori, a Protestant can't rule out that this could be an era, an area of Catholic misdevelopment, if you want to say. It just depends on what Scripture actually comes down to. Yeah. Well, Brandon, did you want to mention anything before we close up? No, I don't have anything. I mean, I, I enjoyed this. I thought it was informative. I got a better handle on exactly what you're saying. So thank you for your time. Yeah. Thanks I mean, a lot, guys. I definitely think a lot of Trinitarians have no idea what, what the arguments are that Unitarians are making. So I think this is really helpful. And hopefully this can be, you know, an ongoing conversation for those who are interested in this. Because, I mean, I don't think there's any more interesting topic than understanding who God is and uh, his relation to the world. So I think it's obviously the most important topic we could be thinking about. So, uh, Dr. Tuggy, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. This was a lot of fun. Uh, we recommend all of our listeners to check out your stuff and uh, to continue thinking uh, through uh, what does it mean uh, for God to be Trinity and all things like that. So everybody who's been tuning in, we thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.